0: Let's pray. Father, you alone are worthy of our praise. We need you to speak to us this morning as we need bread, as we need water. We need your word for sustenance. We need, we need you to sustain your body As you have said you would we thank you for the Holy Spirit as a helper that you've sent him here And we pray that the Holy Spirit would open our hearts and our minds this morning as we prepare to hear from your word We thank you for the finished work of Jesus That we can call you father In Christ we can call you father. We have been adopted into your family It's not by rights. We get to call you father. We were by nature children of wrath dead in our sins and trespasses but in christ we have been made alive we have been declared righteous we stand with all the rights of a firstborn son not not due to our goodness not due to our smarts due to your work and your work alone and to, for that we want to rejoice and our hope is in christ's work alone we pray that you would be here this morning that you would bless the hearts and the minds of those listening and that you would be with the children as they prepare to go off Um, Ecclesiastes 1 all is vanity the words of the preacher the son of David king in Jerusalem vanity of vanities says the preacher vanity of vanities all is vanity What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind. And on its circuits, the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full to the place where the stream flows, where they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A a man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said? See, this is new. It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold... All is vanity and a striving after wind. This is the word of the Lord.
1: There are two important questions which plague our secularist society. Two things that science and philosophy cannot answer, but only religion. And thus, these questions are not regularly explored in television documentaries. They're not regularly the topic of the dilemmas, uh, the personal dilemmas in sitcoms or dramas. These are the existential questions. What is the meaning of life? And related to it, even engulfing it, is the question, what is the meaning of death? Without the hope of eternity, death is the end of all meaning. These are the questions that are tackled in Ecclesiastes, and these are the questions that we should be regularly posing to ourselves, our friends, and our neighbors, because they are the most important questions in the world, and they have likely been swept under a rug somewhere. And so in unique fashion, Ecclesiastes tackles the existential question, allows us to truly feel it, to lock eyes on it without glancing away. It explores the apparent pointlessness of living without the insult of trite or simplistic answers. For the disillusioned, it offers empathetic insight. For those still full of hopeful naivety, it offers the bitter taste of reality. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Life is full of trouble and then you die. No no wonder we don't hear sermons from Ecclesiast- Ecclesiastes all that often. Uh, Such a a nihilistic worldview is hardly compatible with the canon of Scripture. In fact, it causes serious difficulties for the interpretation of Ecclesiastes as a unified book at all, because even a cursory reading demonstrates that the author does not consider everything to be meaningless. Meaningless. On the contrary, there are consistent recommendations for ways to know the goodness and joy of existence. And the whole purpose of this book is to teach the wisdom necessary to live according to God's commands. And so this apparent paradox has spawned all sorts of various hypotheses about the authorship of Ecclesiastes. Mark mentioned one of them. Some suggest that that during the course of his argument, the preacher often quotes opinions that he himself does not agree with. And so, meaningless, meaningless is the nihilistic worldview, and then the author is going to refute that in the book. That's one idea. The issue with this theory is that there is no consistent evidence or satisfactory criteria for identifying the wisdom of the preacher to distinguish it from the thoughts which he supposedly disagrees with. And so, we, in the end, we are left with our own wisdom. We whatever we came to with the book in the first place. If we don't know which were the words of the preacher and which are the quotes, then we just get to pick and choose which things we think are good things and which things we think are bad things, and we say the bad things are quotes. It ultimately takes away the authority of Scripture. Another suggestion is that there are two authors. Now, there is nothing at all wrong with suggesting multiple authors for one book of the Bible. In some books, it's actually made quite apparent that there are more than one author. But in this theory, there is a cynic, as Mark mentioned, who writes the earlier material, which is rife with error. And then a later author who writes an introduction and an ending in order to kind of neutralize all the most troubling aspects of this earlier philosopher. And so we are left trying to discern what is the preacher's theology and which is the theology of the frame narrator and the editor. Our approach to this book is going to be quite different. I am going to suggest that there is no problem at all with what the book of Ecclesiastes teaches. That it is God-breathed scripture, 2 Timothy 3.16, and is therefore entirely profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So Ian Provan writes: we must always consider the possibility when we encounter a difficult biblical book, that the problem lies not with the book, but with ourselves. The difficulty may be that the book speaks truly about reality while we are devoted to illusions. The difficulty may be that we are not too keen to embrace the truth, but prefer to embrace half-truths or lies. Whenever we come to Scripture, we must submit ourselves to it, allowing it to form us, not the other way around. If we press Scripture, forcing it to fit our thoughts Fallen and feeble minds have become the authority over us rather than the inspired words of God. And so that said, some of the difficulty in Ecclesiastes can be solved with a better understanding of its most frequent terms. The the main term here, the Hebrew word hevel, which is unfortunately translated meaningless in the NIV, or vanity in our ESV, literally means vapor. It is the word for vapor. And the term can be used to describe steam, breath, smoke, mist, any other suspensions of diffused matter in the air, which keeps it from being completely transparent. And so, vapor is not meaningless. It is fleeting. This is the meaning of vanity in King James English, and it was an appropriate translation, but now this translation also is problematic, because today, vanity is primarily used in reference to self-pride. And so the author is not saying that everything is meaningless or that everything is full of pride, but that all of life is fleeting. It's mist, vapor, hevel. Hevel is used 38 times in Ecclesiastes as a metaphor connecting to this ephemeral aspect of vapor or breath as an image of the transitory quality of all life. As with any metaphor, there are some ways in which it is appropriate uh, and others in which it isn't. All life is transient, like vapor, but all life isn't wet, like vapor. You see, so uh, whenever we have a metaphor, some of the things are appropriate, some of them not, you can't push the metaphor too far. Meaningless, then, that they have in the NIV is something of an overinterpretation. The Hevel quality of life can make it meaningless, vain, or futile, but exactly because it is frail and fleeting, like a breath. And so we could translate verse 2 various ways along this line. The merest of breaths, says the preacher. The thinnest of vapors. Everything is smoke. It's not that Hevel can never mean meaningless, futility, or frustration, but that those words are reading a lot more into the metaphor than is totally appropriate here. So Hevel is used elsewhere in Scripture to describe the ephemeral quality of life. Consider Psalm 39.5. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as hevel, mere breath. Psalm 144.4, man is like hevel, a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. Proverbs 31.30, charm is deceitful, and beauty is hevel, vain. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Nothing lasts, neither beauty nor life itself. It is altogether hevel. If we try to find meaning, uh, the meaning of life in what is hevel, we will be frustrated, for that is futile, that is meaningless. What is by nature fleeting is insufficient to provide meaning on its own. Whatever you try to build your life on other than Jesus is ultimately utterly meaningless. And so we can remove the necessity for a bad author. We don't have to say, okay, there is a bad author and then a good author, or bad quotes and good quotes, if we correctly understand Ecclesiastes. And then we can look to Ecclesiastes itself to introduce us to its author, which it does twice. First in the third person, Ecclesiastes 1.1, 1, 1, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. And then in the first person, in verse 12, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. We get our name for the book of Ecclesiastes from the Greek translation of the nickname, which the author adopts for himself. In Hebrew, this is Koheleth. And this is based off uh, Kohal, which refers to a group of assembled people. So this word uh, assembly, which incidentally is the same word as the New Testament word for church, all through the Old Testament in the Greek, it's the same word for church when Israel gathers. This kohol, uh, is re- refers to the people of Israel gathered together, uh, for, sometimes for war, but for, most specifically for religious purposes, such as listening to God's word and worshiping. And so when, the, when Israel would gather, the church would gather, and they would worship and praise God. And so Kohaleth is not a proper name, but it's a nickname of sorts. Functioning it as a type of pseudonym, it, it literally means one who assembles or the assembler. And so, um, Ecclesiastes is that word in Greek. Ecclesiastes is the name of the, the, the preacher. He spoke in an ecclesia, the New Testament word for church. And thus, our ESV translation has the preacher. You understand it? It's not a perfect translation, but it's the best we've got. Traditionally, Kohalath has been taken as a pseudonym for Solomon, who else was the son of David, king in Jerusalem. King Solomon had been granted by God a wise and discerning mind along with both great riches and honor in 1 Kings chapter 3. But rather than continuing to trust God for wisdom, Solomon turned to his own way in 1 Kings 11 and oppressed and enslaved his own people amassing great wealth in vast sums of gold and silver, military strength purchased from Egypt in the form of many horses and chariots, and establishing peace with all of his pagan neighbors by intermarriage, taking 700 princesses as wives, as well as 300 other women as well. He did everything to the letter that God commanded in Deuteronomy 17 that a king in Israel must not do. Deuteronomy 17:16. only he must not acquire many horses for himself, or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. So we see that the commands that God had given a king, Solomon, though he was given great wisdom by God at the end of his life, has completely rebelled and does all to the letter exactly what God had commanded him not to do. Solomon did all of these and more, but he became a catchword in Israel for wealth and wisdom. Who besides Solomon could claim to have enjoyed all the world has to offer and yet found it unsatisfying? For me, it's like when Jim Carrey said that everyone ought to be rich so that they could know that it doesn't make you happy. Solomon uniquely was positioned as the world's wealthiest and wisest man to say, hey, look, I've searched everything out, I've tried everything out, and it did not satisfy, which is one of the main messages of Ecclesiastes. Now, it doesn't matter a great deal, and you don't have to agree with me on this, but the author makes it clear that he is not actually Solomon. Proverbs and Song of Solomon both clearly identify Solomon as the author, but Ecclesiastes alludes to Solomon while the author actually writes under the pseudonym Koheleth. So he begins by writing of what Solomon would say in his wisdom about the state of things and then in verse 12 moves into the first person voice of the preacher while once again letting us know that he isn't really Solomon by saying, I have been king. Over Israel and Jerusalem. That is past tense. It can be translated, I was formerly king over Israel. And so, without any deception of any kind, the author is letting us know that he is assuming identification with Solomon, who was king in Israel until his death, as though Solomon himself were writing from beyond the grave. And Solomon was uniquely positioned as the wisest and richest man to have ever lived. If he could not find meaning in the things of the world, who could? And so the the author associates himself with Solomon while retaining his distance from the actual person. He says, I'm Koheleth, not I am Solomon, indicating that his persona is being adopted for literary purposes to communicate this truth. And so later, the preacher will lament the plight of the oppressed under the oppressive rulers of the land in chapter 4. And then later in verse, uh, chapter 11, he will take shots at the king. So this is probably not something that the original Solomon would have written about. If he was the one oppressing Israel and he was the king, he wouldn't complain about this oppressive king in Israel. Either way, the book is the word of God inspired by the Holy Spirit as, and is intended to communicate that even the wealthiest, the most famous, the most powerful will find no satisfaction or meaning in this life because it is all heaven. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A second major term in Ecclesiastes, unique to this book, is translated gain or profit. What does a man gain? It's a repeated question throughout. The idea is not that there is no value at all in labor. In the next chapter, we are told that we should find enjoyment in hard work and that it is a gift from God. Your work is a gift from God. And so this kind of profit that it speaks about is more akin to modern capitalistic consumer-orientated perspective from the world of business and commerce. The idea is that of a surplus. What is laid aside as a profit after all the expenses have been paid? What do you have left over? The author is not saying that work has no intrinsic value or benefit, but that the Hevel quality of life makes any such profit impossible. Death is the great equalizer. There will be no surplus after life is quickly over. No residual benefit from whatever we stockpile. One author, Daniel Aiken, talks about wearing his really cool No Fear t-shirt. Those of you who are really old might remember those. Emblazoned with, he who has the most toys still dies. Because life is but a breath, when the final debt is paid, no profit remains. And so this is the usage of that that word profit. It's not that there's no benefit, no gain. The, The book clearly talks about the benefits of hard work, as does Proverbs. But it's saying there's nothing left over. There's no gain. Why push yourself? Why stress about it? There's no profit in the end anyway. What follows is a poem that emphasizes the fleeting nature of human life by comparing it to natural phenomena which are always in motion but never find completion in their movement. We'll read verses 4 to 8. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down, and it hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. Humans come and go. But as far as any individual mind can perceive, the earth remains unchanged. The sun is then compared to an exhausted track runner who runs lap after lap after lap. Always seems like it's making progress, but it's actually just going in circles. Uh, We know the sun's not actually the one going in circles. We're circling the sun. It's phenomenological. This is the way they saw it in their day. Likewise, the wind also just gusts in circles. Lots of activity, but nothing changes. Nothing is completed. The task is never done. It just repeats itself again and again. There's no satisfaction under the sun. The universe is trapped in a meaningless cycle that never ultimately accomplishes anything. And human experience as a whole mirrors this. The sink full of dishes you just washed is full again. The laundry basket once again overflowing with clothes. The lawn, it just keeps growing. You mow it, it grows. You mow it, it grows. Another day of work melds into all the others in a seemingly endless passage of time. Just as the sea is never full, no matter that every river and stream constantly hastens to fill it, so our lives are never full, never satisfied. This is why the Solomon persona is so important to ecclesiastes because more money more fame more sexual partners more power and bigger houses would never fill this void and to this the wealthy king can testify in this, life is connected to the second use of hevel in Scripture. This word is also often used in the Bible in connection with idols. In fact, the ESV translates hevel as false gods in Jeremiah 14.22. It says, Are there any among the hevel?" of the nations that can bring rain any among the false gods is how our translation puts it but is is there any among the hevel of the nations and the people immediately understood that the hevel of the nations was their gods meaningless worthless smoke false gods can't bring rain any more than people can find satisfaction in created things rather than their creator Seeking satisfaction in anything or anyone other than God is idolatry. And so hevel becomes a word that's used throughout the Bible also, not just for mist, but also for idolatry. It's not that pleasure, money, stuff, sex, or success are bad things in and of themselves, but when they become ultimate things, they let us down. When a good thing becomes a God thing, it becomes a bad thing. It becomes an idol Idols look like they can give us satisfaction, but this too is Hevel, a mirage. A third connection to the Hevel metaphor is found in verse 8. Parallel to the sun, wind, and sea are three, three human behaviors. We cannot say enough, see enough, or hear enough. Creation is a vast and intricate reality, far beyond the control or even grasp of human beings. and all of our speech, sight, and hearing, we are unable to find the words for it. And all of our looking at it and listening to it cannot comprehend it. And so it's not just the ephemeral nature of heaven that life resembles, but also its elusive nature. It is beyond our grasp. As verse 14 says, all is hevel, or vanity, and a striving after the wind. Again, it's not that all human activity and thought are meaningless. Clearly, the author does not believe this, but that every human attempt to impose self on reality is a foolish undertaking, ending only in frustration. It is a chasing after the wind, trying to grasp smoke, trying to hold a breath in your hand. Life is filled with situations beyond your ability to fully understand or control. It is beyond us to even discover on our own that which gives meaning to life. Verse 9, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. And so ends the poem. Even a politically conservative culture constantly proclaims the message that everything that matters revolves around us and that through education, hard work, and creative insight, people can find meaning and make a lasting impact. So this isn't just one type of human culture, this is all of them. But there is no profit, no stockpiled surplus for mankind when we are considered over the long term. We don't remember far enough back to know if what we do today has already been done. Like Ozymandias, soon all of our works will be covered with sand. In the words of the modern hymn, should nothing of our efforts stand, no legacy survive, unless the Lord does raise the house, in vain its builders strive. To you who boast tomorrow's gain, tell me what is your life, a mist that vanishes at dawn. All glory be to Christ. See how it's connecting in all sorts of ways to this passage in Ecclesiastes? Vanity, hevel, a mist that vanishes. Our culture today likes to think of itself as progressing, but really it is reliving the mistakes of the past. The earth has suffered an ancient cycle of construction and deconstruction and construction and deconstruction. We take encouragement from any new event or accomplishment, but all seems empty after a while. Ecclesiastes insists that these things are all a repetition of what has happened before and will soon be forgotten. Now, this passage we've read this morning is not a contradiction to the gospel, but a call for it. The world is in bondage, and humanity is unable to explain, find satisfaction in, or alter it. The only new thing has ever been accomplished is by Christ Jesus. He created a new covenant, gives a new birth, new life, and a new commandment. Only he can give a new name and an inheritance that will last forever. Ecclesiastes, as I said earlier, connects to the disillusioned. And it will will offer us answers, though nothing so trite or simplistic. But first he paints the picture as bleakly as possible, so as to dispel the illusions of those who still cling to them. Death, excuse me, this is coming off. Death mocks all of our efforts at progress. Death mocks all of our attempts to elevation to divinity. It mocks our progress. It mocks our desire for a legacy. Some of us just need to go about this week in response to this passage and correctly label everything in our lives. We need to walk around this week and be like, that's Hevel. That's Hevel. Hevel. This house, Hevel. My dream home, Hevel. My job, Hevel. My marriage, Hevel. My reputation, this business I'm building is Hevel. Your bucket list is Hevel. As we turn to the New Testament, we see that Jesus Christ is the one who redeems us from the vanity, the meaninglessness. He showed that for believers, death is not the end of all meaning, but the entrance into the very presence of God. There's an allusion to Ecclesiastes in Romans eight eighteen to twenty one, where the same Greek word used in the Septuagint to translate the motto word of Ecclesiastes, hevel, is translated futility. It says, verse eighteen, Romans eight eighteen. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, hevel. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Because death is not the end for those whose hope is in Jesus, this life is not meaningless. And so, hevel leads to meaningless. So, it's not such a terrible translation, but it is a terrible translation if you take that to the full extent. So, it is vapor, hevel. Everything is hevel. It becomes meaningless if there is nothing after death. But death is not the end of our hope. The treasures of this world are hevel. Fleeting by nature, soon to be destroyed, but we have an eternal treasure awaiting us in heaven, Matthew 6, 19, on the other side of death. Though all are eventually forgotten in this life under the sun, there is great hope in Christ. Not one of God's children is forgotten. Those who have entered into a living relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ, will know that their names are written in the book of life and engraved upon the palms of His hands. But the gospel in Ecclesiastes is no mere eschatological gospel. It's not just about the end. It focuses our attention on this life rather than the next. And so it contributes to the correction of an all-too-frequent imbalance throughout the ages in Christian thinking, which has sometimes presented Christianity as more of a matter of waiting than a matter of living. And so while our ultimate hope is in life after death, that life after death makes it so everything we do in this Hevel life still matters. And so that is what the author is trying to get across through Ecclesiastes. Teach us something of how to live this life. And part of how to live this life in a healthy manner, to have the joy and peace and hope of the, of the Holy Spirit at work in us, is to know that everything's hevel. It's all going away. We found out this week that one of my daughters has a cavity. What a disaster. But it's, it's in her baby tooth. Oh, good, that's just gonna fall out. But as you get older, you're just happy if you get a colon through the rest of your life. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? We, once we see that things are heavily, you're like, well, this is passing away too. This too is passing away. Prepare yourselves, give up your illusions. It's all going away very quickly. So there's no profit to be found under the sun, but believers have the peace, hope, and joy of knowing that none ever need to be found. To pursue profit is pointless, but there is no need for the pursuit. There is sufficient reward in life itself if it is received as a gift from God and lived well. We know that Christ has already obtained our reward. All the profit that we hope to have in the life to come is not from anything that we've done. In fact, Ecclesiastes will tell us over and over again that all of our labors, we should enjoy them. They provide food for our families, and we should enjoy our food as well, but they don't produce any profit. Only the new labor of Christ in his new covenant has secured an eternal profit us. In the end, it is this life lived knowing that all is hevel, the peace and hope and joy of knowing that that doesn't matter. And in the end, this is the behavior that Ecclesiastes calls us to. Ecclesiastes 12.3, the end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. Hevel refers to the fragile, fleeting nature of existence which should cause us to seize the moment and live well in it before God, while at the same time leading us to spurn the desire for any control over this life and to disdain that insane grasping after profit which so often characterizes human activity. Contentment and satisfaction never comes to those who are caught up in this cycle. But when we truly comprehend the fleeting, hevel nature of this world, we can enjoy all the good things God has granted us without frustration and without the futility of grasping. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your mighty word. It is powerful to accomplish change in us. What you send your word out to do, it perfectly accomplishes the mission that you have sent it upon. Father, I pray that your word would accomplish in us sanctification. I pray that as we come to this book, Ecclesiastes, rarely preached through because of its concerns, Lord, we would truly see the vapor-like way of life, that all things are coming to an end and that we would not hold tightly to them, nor grasp for them, but that we would enjoy the little things. Like when we go camping and I don't have any of my comfortable places to sit or any of my comfortable things to do, we still enjoy it because it's such a temporary time. Lord, I pray that our time in this life would be lived fruitfully, pursuing your purposes, seeking your kingdom rather than the treasures of this earth. Not because we don't know how to value those things or poor stewards, but because we know they are so temporary. And so in our temporary homes, wearing our temporary clothes, in our temporary families, I pray that we would honor you in everything we do, enjoying those things to the fullness that you have called us to, seeing the way in which they point us to you. For while we have this taste test, this appetizer of some good things, they are all meant to point us to the satisfaction that can be found only in our Creator. And so, Lord, I pray for a dramatic reorientation of our lives, a dramatic reorientation of our ambitions. As we ask ourselves today, what would we like to get out of this life May you remind us, this is Hevel, this is heaven, this is heaven. And teach us that true satisfaction is only found in you. And all that matters must be built upon the foundation of the gospel, on the cornerstone, which is Jesus Christ. That everything else we do will be burnt up. It is smoke. But what is eternal is what we have accomplished for your purposes and for your glory. Give us this ambition. I pray, give us this attitude of life so that we can enjoy our lives and hold so lightly to them. For the glory of Jesus we ask this and for our good because we are designed for this joy. Amen.